0: You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The average physician only receives an hour or two of sleep education in their medical career. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Doug Hudson, the founder of Sleep Medicine Consultants and the Austin Neurological Clinic in Austin, Texas. Dr. Hudson also serves as principal investigator at Future Search Trials of Neurology and Sleep Disorders, and he is the Medical Director of Rehabilitation at Texas Neuro Rehab Center. Welcome, Dr. Hudson. Thank you, Leslie. Doug, most of us really don't know beans about sleep, even though it's something that we should be doing a
1: third of our life.
0: Can you walk us through the stages of sleep,
1: please? Well, I'd be glad to. I have talks on that like most sleep doctors do, and then we also have a few little myths of sleep medicine that we like to point out if we have time. As you fall asleep at night in a normal setting, you first go into what we call stage one, which is stage where your brain waves start to break up a little bit and slow down from the normal activity. Muscle tone remains good. Everything else looks okay. And you're in a state that described as sort of zoning out, as some people say. And if someone called your name, you would answer that. It only lasts for a few moments, maybe minutes at at the most, Uh, in most people, I'm talking about normal. Then you drift into stage two sleep, where we spend about half of our night. You'll spend an hour or so in stage two sleep, and and during stage two sleep, we call it non-restorative, but obviously it's restorative for something, for the body to rest and all, and slows down. Sleep is pretty much a parasympathetic phenomena that goes on all night. The sympathetic nervous system calms down and the parasympathetics prevail. Our blood pressures start to drop down. Heart rate slows down. And so we spend half of our night in this stage. But if you hear a noise or the dog barks and you're in stage two, that will wake you up pretty easily because it's not that very deep of a sleep. And then in about an hour, you fall into your first so-called deep sleep or delta sleep or stage three, four slow wave sleep because it's described as that the brain waves have slowed down. And during this stage, the muscle activity remains very active. And if someone calls your name or the dog barks, you're not likely to wake up. If you're going to sleepwalk, for example, you would do it in this stage. It's sort of a paradoxical thing because many people come to the office and say, oh, I don't get that deep REM sleep. Well, the next stage you go into in about an hour and a half after you've gone to sleep is REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. Muscle tone is dropped out the bottom. You're essentially paralyzed. Eye movements are jerking around very fast, and that's where it gets its name, rapid eye movement sleep. But you're very almost awake. The brain waves look like you're awake, and you call people's names out, you wake up. It's very common to wake up right after or during REM sleep if there's a noise or something like that. If you're walking around during dream sleep or acting out your dreams, that's not normal at all. That's where we make the diagnosis of REM behavior disorder. Now, during the slow-wave sleep that you've just come out of, this is when most of our growth hormone is secreted, like during childhood, for example. And children who have disruptive homes or have disruptive sleep conditions like asthma and things like that often have stunted growth because they're not getting the growth hormone that comes out. In patients who are adults who have conditions like fibromyalgia with a lot of pain, they also have very reduced slow-wave sleep. And this, if you can induce slow-wave sleep, it will increase growth hormone, which we know will help with pain syndromes. As we grow older, we lose slow-wave sleep, and there is some controversy, like do you go old because you lose slow-wave sleep, or do you lose slow-wave sleep because you grow old? But there are medicines that we take away that also reduce slow-wave sleep. You might think it makes more of it, but it reduces it. And then dream sleep, or rapid eye movement sleep, we have certain diagnoses we make about how fast you get into that. As far as the slow-wave sleep goes, you know, that's the time you might do sleepwalking or sleep eating or something like that. It's also interesting about the peak of ambient when we sometimes talk to patients who take certain drugs that peak out their maximum. So you put the highest saturation of ambient in somebody's system with the most likely time for somebody to move around. That puts a little episode together where we have these people who do things like eat and so forth or act out when they take medicines like that. So when we look at stages of sleep, we do know many endocrine things that uh, go on at night, such as thyroid function and prolactin function and, and parathyroid function and all. And as they do occur during certain stages of sleep, we can predict certain things that might happen based on the sleep staging and the la- or the lack of. So you go through this REM cycle after about an hour and a half. It may last for 10 or 15 minutes, and then you start the cycle all over again. Now, after about a couple of hours or so, you start losing all of this deep stage 3-4 slow-wave sleep, which we call it, again, because the brain waves are slow, and it's very restorative sleep, and you don't see much of that after midnight. So before midnight would be more likely to be deep, slow-wave sleep, which would be more normal. Afterwards, it might be acting out your dreams. And the next question we ask is, how easily was the patient awakened? If they're very hard to awaken, you assume they're probably in three, four slow-wave sleep. If they're easy to awaken, they're probably in dream sleep. So you go through these cycles throughout the night, and that's about 25% in REM, rapid eye movement, 25% in slow-wave sleep, and half your night in so-called stage two sleep.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Austin, Texas sleep physician, Dr. Doug Hudson. We are discussing the stages of sleep. Doug, can you review for us, other than Valium-type drugs, what kinds of impact do common medicines have on our sleep architecture?
1: Well, it's interesting that you ask that. We see patients, for example, that come in and they're deprived of rapid eye movement sleep, and that's supposedly it is a restorative stage, supposedly to do with memory and consolidation of things at night that make us do better the next day cognitively, perform better. And so when we want to induce REM sleep, the medicines that we would give would be a drug like Aricept, or one of the drugs, the, the anticholinesterase inhibitors like you would use for Alzheimer's. As you know, a side effect of those drugs is sometimes wild dreaming and so forth. So that will often induce uh, rapid eye movement sleep. We have patients on antidepressant medication, and I think most of the antidepressants, I think maybe Welbutrin, maybe Serazon, and another older one, Sermontal, as I recall, or something, are about the only three that really do not suppress dream sleep. Now, that's not all bad. It's just that if you know it, then you recognize it and don't make a big deal out of it, or if somebody comes in on you know, four antidepressants or something and they get no REM sleep, you might suggest the possibility that some changes could be made, but we don't usually make them ourselves. We have a lot of drugs. Lithium, for example, will induce at stage 3, 4 slow-wave sleep. Neurontin, which is a common drug, or gabapentin, will induce slow-wave sleep. Xyrem, uh, as you know, that's the drug for narcolepsy, will induce slow-wave sleep tremendously. We look at the sleep architecture, look at their medicines, try to put it all together, and point it out to the referring doctor uh, or to ourselves for future reference what medications might adversely affect the various stages of sleep.
0: Now, I've seen some physicians that believe fibromyalgia, for example, is a slow-wave sleep deficiency. What do you think about that?
1: Well, that is true. Uh, We see that Every day we have a lot of referrals from pain physicians. They know that we will work on their sleep architecture and so we do sleep studies on the patients with fibromyalgia. They have a paucity of this deep restorative state three, four slow wave sleep. I add all those words to it to define it, but and not only that they have intrusion of more faster alpha waves, which they in themselves are probably considered more of an arousal state that's called sort of alpha-delta sleep. We don't see it all the time, but we do see a significant reduction in slow-wave sleep in many patients who are being treated for fibromyalgia. We are, in fact, getting ready to start two clinical trials with medications to Probably induce slow-wave sleep to help patients with fibromyalgia.
0: So more to come on that, huh?
1: More to come on that, yes.
0: Are there any other medicines that either enhance certain sleep stages or detract from them?
1: Well, many of the uh, psychiatric drugs, especially the antipsychotics and MAO inhibitors, have a significant impact on dream sleeps at times as well as the other ones that we mentioned before. Many articles have been published on this, and when you look at a book and try to find out when somebody's on a drug that you're not too familiar with, and it'll usually say no studies done, as if though there need to be a lot of studies to help us with this.
0: Dr. Hudson, what about alcohol? How does that affect sleep?
1: Well, alcohol is a great sleep inducer; it puts you to sleep pretty fast. But uh, as you well know, that uh, as it's metabolized and the metabolites start to come out, then you have this rebound effect and People then awaken with a wild dream sometimes because it does suppress dream sleep. It acts like Benadryl, for example. That's what Benadryl does, is has an anticholinergic effect. And then once it wears off, and wham, here comes all this rapid eye movement. Sleep, which is often uh, wild dreams and, and very light sleep and it makes it difficult to sleep, disrupts the sleep architecture significantly. And But it does put you to sleep. It's exactly like, you know, maybe uh, one of the short-acting benzodiazepine drugs would do. Takes your mind off of what's going on and causes some sedation.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host. And with me today is Austin, Texas sleep physician Dr. Doug Hudson. We are discussing the stages of sleep. How about opiates?
1: Well, opiates do the same thing that a lot of other ones do. They also have an effect upon slow wave sleep and so we don't when the patients come in with pain medicine they're they're already usually on opiates, benzodiazepines, antidepressants and they just sit there in the stage 2 sleep all night long like a bear does when it hibernates and they have no restorative sleep whatsoever. And of course, it's very difficult to take some other physician's medicine and do more than it, just maybe make recommendations as to what they could do or something, and these people need these drugs sometimes. The other thing that happens with some of the opiates, like duregesic patch or fentanyl or something like that, cause a lot of central sleep apnea, or suppresses the respiratory center, And when that happens, it certainly disrupts not only your oxygen levels and things, but disrupts your sleep architecture and creates arousals. And so that affects the sleep staging, too.
0: I would suspect that you'd have to be very careful with those kind of medicines in patients that have obstructive sleep apnea. They they really get the double whammy then.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's why when we put patients, for some reason, if we're forced to, like as a neurological condition or something, and we need to put someone on a medicine that is sedating, we nearly always do sleep studies to find out what the baseline is before we do that.
0: I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Doug Hudson. We have been discussing the stages of sleep. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.